Welcome to Trigonometry. I'm Francis Foster. I'm Constantine Kisson. And this is the show for you if you're bored of people arguing on the internet over subjects they know nothing about. At Trigonometry, we don't pretend to be the experts. We ask the experts. Our fantastic expert guest this week is a returning guest to Trigonometry, the first returning guest to Trigonometry. She's a former advisor to US president and the founder of H Robotics, Dr. Pippa Malmgren. I got it right. Yes. And our amazing expert guest this week is the columnist for The Spectator, vice chairman of the Ogilvy Advertising Group, and one of the most amazing creative counterintuitive thinkers in the world today. Rory Sutherland, welcome to Trigonometry. It's a joy to be here. Our fantastic expert guest this week is a psychologist and author, Dr. Linda Papadopoulos. Welcome to Trigonometry. Thank you for having me. But let, let's just get straight into it. First of all, one of the things, you know, this is called trigonometry. And we briefly mentioned that uh, I was telling you the study that I saw that Telling, giving people trigger warnings actually primes them to be to have a negative experience of whatever it is. And you were like, yeah, please, please ask me about that on, on the show. So what, what do you want to say to us as a psychologist about that? If you think of um, one of the things that we do in cognitive therapy, right, when someone comes in and says, look, this is happening to me and it's really bothering me, one of the things that we do is we look at erroneous thinking. So if I've come in and I've said, you know, oh, you know, I, I don't like stripes, it may be that you hear, well, Linda doesn't like me. We'll, we'll talk about it later. We'll have it. And, um, and, you know, or she's being offensive and she's being directly offensive. Now, if you were having therapy, they'd be like, well, maybe it's just that Linda had a bad experience with stripes. Maybe it's nothing personal. Maybe before you kind of personalize this and become triggered by it, maybe you need to check out with Linda why she said that. So in a lot of ways, these, these trigger warnings, in a lot of ways kind of priming people to be offended is the exact opposite of what we do in CBT, which is take a step back and reevaluate that thought, right? If I'm going out of my way to find something to be offended about, then I will be. And there's a value in being offended because if I'm offended, I can put myself in the role of someone who's a victim, then they need to take care of me. I can get sort of some sort of, I can get social points because I've called you out for being whatever, being unthoughtful, uncaring. Um, so th there's a reason why this happens. And I think one of the things that that I think we see a lot of these days with regards to, to people feeling that vulnerability is precisely because I think a lot of young people grew up in a culture where their parents got rid of obstacles. They were like snowplows. So they had a problem with the teacher, they went and they spoke to the teacher on their behalf. They, you know, they didn't like not being invited to a kid's party, they'd complain and they'd speak to the mother and they'd be invited to the party. A big part of dealing with life is having the resilience to come back and realize it's sometimes shit happens not because someone's out to get me, but because things happen and I have to find the strength to overcome these things. So I just kind of feel that a lot of the way that we're talking about trigger warnings and language being dangerous basically de-skills people from being able to cope with these things. And, and I certainly wouldn't want that, you know, for, for, for my child or any of the young people that I work with. And do you think this behaviour is addictive, that once you start and you cast yourself in the role of victim, you get this attention, you think to yourself, hang on, I quite enjoy this, whether consciously or sub subconsciously. Well, th there's, I think there's a power in, um, in being being seen and being heard. And look, I think there are some genuine people that are victimized out there, and I think it's important that we say that, and I think they should be able to speak up and talk about it. But I think intent's important, right? If I bump into you, and I didn't mean to bump into you, then surely that matters, right? Yeah. Yeah. Now, 
the amount you hurt, you know, if you're really hurt, that, that, yeah, that matters too. But the intent has to come into it. And I kind of fear that it's very rarely about intent. It's very rarely that I didn't notice you had the striped shirt on before I said I don't like striped oh. shirt. I'm keep going on with the shirt. I'm sorry. With the <laughs> I, I always enjoy when your fashion sense gets destroyed. destroyed yeah, 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 yeah. That's always the best. I, I did show this to my girlfriend yesterday and she just looked at it and then walked out the room. <laughs> you know when you're trying to pet a cat and it's like, yeah. no. <laughs> so there we go. The moral of the story is listen to your girlfriend. <laughs> yeah, 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 and listen to her disapproval. Mm. Right, um, do you think social media has made this worse? The fact that, you know, we're all constantly logged in, we're all looking for approval, we're all looking for likes, etc., etc., etc. I, I think it's um, it's a huge part of it. I think, yes, the looking for approval and likes, but I think also kind of the distillation of one's ideology down to their, you know, most thoughtless tweet, right? Mm -hmm. So... Yeah, if, if, you know, surely we're an amalgam of, of all of, you know, the, the ways that we interact, our interactions, our opinions, everything else. But because I can look into your background and come up with the one time that you used, a, you know, whatever, a, you know, a word in the wrong way or you re-liked something you didn't think about and you retweeted it, I think these things mean that... Um, we're walking on eggshells. We're constantly so anxious of being misunderstood um, because there, like we said earlier, there's there's something um, in calling out people for being wrong. So we've got this very weird situation where we want to be seen. So we're constantly kind of saying, this is what I feel about this and I have an opinion about that. But at the same time, the rest of us are kind of looking to call each other out because there's a value in that as well. So like the kind of the discourse isn't the healthiest. We're not kind of talking to get to a better place of understanding. We're talking to kind of call each other out and see, well, hold on, maybe you didn't see that in the right way. And then that, you know, then those kind of Twitter wars start and yeah. And do you think it's sort of, uh, it increases people's narcissism using the social media? Well, yeah, I think it's inevitable that something that, um, that, that, that makes you think about how you're seen in such a nuanced way increases narcissism. And, 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 and I don't mean that, I mean, it's actually really kind of heartbreaking. So I've been a psychologist for, for many, many years, and sort of even things that I see a lot of, the way that they're depicted to me have changed. I do a lot with eating disorders. And, um, you know, for, for many years, the, the big thing was a number, right? So I want to be this weight, I want to be this size. And then more recently, people are bringing in sort of pictures from Instagram with sort of hashtags like bikini bridge or thigh gap or box gap, which means we're kind of standing outside ourselves and looking in. We're kind of, you know, self-objectifying. Now, this self-objectification, while there's a narcissistic element, there's also an element that kind of belies incredibly dangerous um, low self-esteem because, you know, not only am I looking at myself through my eyes but through the eyes of you know everyone else that I feel is looking at me and through their values and through the way that they're going to assess me um, so yeah I, I always say if I was going to create a an exercise for poor self-esteem I'd, I'd tell people to take a bunch of pictures of themselves look through the ones that are like the least awful then find that one and then spend you know 20 minutes filtering it thinking of a great hashtag then put it up on social media then sit back and wait for the likes and if 50 don't come in the first 20 minutes take it down and start over again that is literally an exercise in you know in poor self-esteem yet you know so many people do it day in day out and and this idea of not being able to live up to your selfie you know this discrepancy between who I am and who I'm projecting I think is having a significant effect on mental health because there's there's no ability to rest from from what does everybody else think about me 
that's constantly there. There's no ability to say, well, this is who I am, and maybe this can be okay. And I've always thought as well that kind of part of your job as a human being as you mature is to start to get to a point where your self-esteem is driven by what you think about yourself, like a kind of sense of who you are. And it seems like social media is taking that away from us and kind of almost exploring our vulnerabilities as human beings. Would you say that we're particularly vulnerable to social media as humans? Well, this is such an interesting point. So, again, if you look at... Um sort of human evolution, we've not evolved to kind of absorb the opinions of thousands and thousands of people on ourselves, right? We tend to live in sort of in groups, and, and there's some research that attests the fact that even the amount of friends that we have should be no more than about 100. We, we just can't handle anymore. That's how we've evolved. It works well. So social media is all about the numbers, like you say. And so, you know, being able to assimilate this kind of, I, I mean, there's like bathroom doors. Anyone can write whatever it is on the back, but because they're not in a little cubicle with a smelly toilet. They're there for everyone to see. It matters. Whatever's written matters. And if thousands and thousands of people's opinions and the diversity of them matter, again, that, that's a recipe for disaster because not only do you, do you not rest from it, but you're never, like you say, able to say, do you know what? This is who I am. This is the imperfect version of who I am. And while I think we all want to, you know, self-actualize and reach our potential, you know, part of that is saying, I'll never play in the MBA if I'm a certain height, or I'll never have a singing career if I can't, and I, or whatever it is, mm-hmm. and, and being okay with that. And I think that's that's harder when, you know, those goalposts are always, you know, sort of changing about who you ought to be, and everyone's telling you, well, you're not there yet. What, what do you think about, what do you think makes social media so addictive? What, do, is it specifically, has they designed it that way? Why do we buy into it so much? Like even I do it. Even I do it. The first thing I do when I wake up in the morning is check Instagram. Yeah. Uh, because okay, this is very interesting. Again, so up until relatively recently, psychology has been used to help people. Right. So you mm. have a problem, you go to a psychologist, you help them. Um, in the last sort of. 20, 30 years, psychology is slowly being used to, to persuade people. There's, there's places called sort of persuasive technology labs, usually where, you know, uh, places where tech exists, right? So like Silicon Valley, where our psychology is being used against us. So for example, I don't know, um, you guys obviously, Netflix, right? I love Netflix. I can't watch one show anymore. I rarely, if I'm watching a series, I can rarely turn off and watch. Now the reason for that is they know that if they start the next one right away, like they do, I'm more likely to stay. They take away a barrier. If I can skip the intro, I'm more likely to stay. They take away another barrier because the metric for the success of social media sites is time spent online. So they ensure, and not because they're evil, I don't think anyone with these social media companies is bad or evil. They're just trying to to maximize their profit, maximize how successful they are. So if time spent online is what they want, when I'm devising whatever, Instagram, Snapchat, Facebook, I'm going to ensure, well, what will make you more likely to stay? Well, I know that notifications will. Why? Do you know um, there's something called variable reward system, you know, like uh, slot machines? Yeah. You know why they're addictive? If every time you pulled it, you know, something would come out, there'd be not much to it. You'd get it when you wanted it. But the fact that sometimes it comes out every three times you pull it, sometimes it comes out every five times, means you're much more likely to go back. We know that. That's very basic human behavior. Now, that variable reward system exists on all social media sites. It exists in when you see that little uh, notification at the bottom. It exists when you're going to get some sort of validation, when you get the, you know, the retweet. It exists when someone likes something. We know that. Now, also, there's gender differences here, right? So... 
Um, if we look at the way that boys um, and girls react differently, we know that boys are, tend to be much more apt to gaming addiction. Why is that? Because from an evolutionary perspective, men are, have evolved to seek out competency, especially during those teen years, young boys. Now, what does that mean? That means I want to feel like I'm getting good at something. Now, what better thing than if I give you a game that I kind of ding, 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 give you a reward every little while, every little increment so I feel better, and I get that dopamine rush, and I play more, so I get more of a dopamine rush. So that becomes quite addictive. For girls, we're taught to seek out kind of that social equity, right? Do, I, do you like me? Am yeah. I, you know, am, do I have that equity? Do you, do you enjoy, you know, being with me? And as a consequence, again, those hearts, those likes are going to be very validating and rewarding. So, you know, be, behind your phone, this is not just a platform. There's, you know, there's dozens of people with PhDs in psychology, you know, way smarter than, you know, than the average person in terms of how they understand human beings behavior, how they understand themselves, all, you know, ensuring that you spend as much time as possible on these platforms. And do you think that there's anything that can be done or what, 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 what's going to be the impact, first of all, of this if you project it into the future? And is there anything we can do as a society, maybe legislatively, to, to start to curb some of these things? Yeah, I mean, I, I think it will. I think we're already beginning to see so um, sort of gaming addictions already accepted in places like Japan. Um, not not yet um, in the in the states, but I think it, it's happening. We know that. Um, we know that. Um, again, even from a, a psychological point of view, um, you know, self harm, um, which we we tend to see quite a lot of it, especially with sort of adolescents and adults, we're beginning to see that in the digital form. So digital self-harm, where young people are bullying themselves online anonymously. Now, this is a new thing. And what? Yeah. You've got to tell us more about it. I've never heard of this. So um, there's been cases where um, young people have been horrifically bullied online. And as we know, there's been you know, horrific cases where they've taken their own lives or attempted to. And what we find now is in some cases, certainly, certainly not all, but in some cases, uh, these young people will actually be in such a low place that they create another profile and they bully themselves. They call themselves stupid or ugly or horrible. And the premise, we believe, because this is very new, this is not something we know, uh, you know, we don't have much data on, but we believe it's the same thing. It's about, um, it's about showing the pain, showing the, the pain I feel inside and, and externalizing it and being able to deal with it. So, um, you know, all of these things are, are affecting us. And this is just mental health. Cognitive health is being affected as well. We know that millennials now, there's some studies to attest to the fact that millennials have worse memories than seniors. And we know... <laughs> We know that because when you consolidate a memory, if you keep being interrupted, you're never going to consolidate that mm. memory. So try and remember something when I keep, you know, you keep hearing buzzing or pinging or you're having to re-answer that email. There's a reason for this. Sleep disorders, huge problem. They're on the rise. Why? Because this blue light that we're constantly on affects us. Sleep's really important. We believe that sleep is one of the factors that is implicated in depression. So there's so much going on. And, and I think kind of our tech has outpaced our social evolution, our physiological evolution, and we're, we're trying to play catch-up. If you ask the question at the very beginning, why am I here? And I suppose one of the reasons I'm here is I gave a TED talk back in about 2009, I think it was, yeah, something like that. Yeah. 
So that's nine years ago now. And I simply made the Eurostar gag. Oh, it's fantastic. Yeah. Fantastic little story. Okay. Now, I'd only thought about it a couple of days beforehand. The point was that they were spending £6 billion uh, building high-speed rail tracks between St Pancras and the Kent Coast to reduce the overall journey time between London and Paris, London and Brussels as well, by about 25 minutes. Okay? Now, my snarky little suggestion was, look, uh, what is a bit weird is we're spending £6 billion on these rail tracks, and the trains... This was true until two years ago, okay? So the trains don't have Wi-Fi. Now, I don't know, our southeastern trains, which you share with me from Tunbridge Wells, they're now installing Wi-Fi on uh, They are. They're... I actually get, half the time, I'm actually annoyed my train arrives so early. <laughs> I, should, I should have got off London Bridge to get here today. I stayed on until Charing Cross because I was in the middle of something. If you put Wi-Fi on something, essentially time loses its meaning. Mm. Okay? Yes. But also, you're perfectly productive or entertained. So actually... You know, the time doesn't matter nearly as much. So you can reduce what you might call perceptual journey time, not at a cost of six billion, which is what it costs to reduce actual journey time. You can reduce it at a cost of what's probably five million, six million, which is literally 0.1% of the cost. I said, look, if you want to be more perverse, and I just got silly there, I said, you know, if you really wanted to improve the Eurostar and you had a budget of six billion, you'd hire all of the world's top male and female supermodels, get them to walk up and down the train, handing out free Chateau Petrus to all the passengers. <laughs> <laughs> you'd have saved five billion pounds, because it would cost you about a billion pounds to do that, and people would ask for the trains to be slowed down. <laughs> now, the point about that is it's a totally... It, that is what you might call the advertising cousin mm. to a comedic technique which is the reframing joke yes which is you tell something you know that you know the most the, the most boring thing is you know uh, you know um that joke which seems completely innocent until you flip the context by saying that uh, you know I, I you know i was masturbating the other day blah 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 and then suddenly you introduce the fact that it, it was in Sainsbury's. Yes, and the yes. same thing takes on basically what is, uh, go, go, goes from self, what you might call a little bit of, of reveal. Uh, that wasn't me literally saying that. Yes. Yes. Yeah. Just to make that clear. Yeah. Yeah. Right? You would never shop in Sainsbury's. Uh, no, 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 no. <laughs> But the, the, the interesting thing there is that it's exactly the same thing, which is that human decision-making is quite often, and human perception, is badly constrained by a conceptual frame or what you might call a mind trap. And comedy is one of the ways in which you can liberate yourself from this. Mm. So I'll give you a little real-world story, which is... Uh, you may remember, it's one of my favourite sketches, even though, as I said, it makes no sense. It's a Rowan Atkinson sketch from Not the Nine O'Clock News, where he goes into a bathroom showroom and they have various little model showers, baths, etc., in which he can actually design his own bathroom. And he just decides he's going to have a bathroom with seven toilets. <laughs> and he's going to get, you know, if, you, if I get rid of the bath, I can have another couple of toilets yeah. against the wall. You see? Yeah. Now, OK, totally bonkers, gorgeous, right? Anybody who's seen it will still remember it 35 years later. Mm. Someone comes to me with a problem, which is the firemen in certain American cities, when they're not fighting fires, which actually is most of the time, because yeah. uh, you know, uh, smoke detection equipment and so on, and uh, vastly less flammable fabrics have reduced the incidence of, uh, of domestic fires quite significantly. So they go around typically to poorer areas in the US, to housing projects, and they try and install um, smoke detectors for free. It's perfectly 
noble and worthwhile thing to do. Now, one of the things they can never get their head around, and I can't understand it either entirely, is that they can get nearly everybody, they ring on the door and say, fireman here, we're just here to install a smoke detector. You basically, you can get them to install one, but they really balk at two or three, and the typical apartment really needs three. The strange thing is, that's like saying, no, I don't want one in my child's bedroom. It's a really weird thing to say. But for some reason, people just draw the line at one maybe two, when three is necessary. Hmm. Okay, now, I used that same kind of Python-esque, uh, you know, bizarre approach to suggest a solution, which is very simple thing in behavioral science, it's just re-anchoring. I said, uh, and it partly was, okay, I partly suggested absolutely outrageous uh, things which, uh, uh, which would never be legal or acceptable. Um, which is to actually outrage people by saying, uh, you know, well, actually, if you're a Korean, you'd be entitled to three, but since you're African-American, you only get two. Okay. Now, okay. <laughs> I can see why that might be an issue with that. No, no, but you do it the other way around. You do yeah. it the other way around, mm. okay? So you, you absolutely cause some sort of outrage. Mm. Now, and competitiveness between different groups. And competitiveness and comparison. Mm. Uh, that came from a friend of mine who's... Um, Wife was Chinese who was invited to visit South Africa, and she they didn't go in the end, but she wasn't allowed to share the same hotel with him. Um, and they rang up and said, Is your wife Chinese or Japanese? He said, She's Singaporean Chinese. Ah, oh, unfortunately, she'll need to stay in a different hotel. She wasn't so bothered about staying in a different hotel from her husband. The idea that had she been Japanese, it would have been okay mm. drove her practically insane. Yes. yes. Okay. Uh, we, we forget this fact, actually. It's one of the problems of the British left. They assume complete harmony among uh, all external uh, ethnic groups. Mm. Well, the Chinese-Japanese uh, rivalry is, and, and with some reason in some cases, yes. is yes. Still, <laughs> pretty, still pretty intense. Mm. But, okay, so one of the things I... One of the reasons, and this is why free speech in advertising, by the way, and free speech in comedy are both really, really important things to fight for. Now, no-one is suggesting for a second I'm ever going to do that, Okay. But it just struck me as a really interesting idea of how to get people to accept three, is to suggest that they weren't actually... Uh, one of the ideas about how you get younger children to eat insects is to have a pile of locusts. And you say, well, unfortunately, because you're under 16, you won't be allowed to eat these. Mm. You know, basically, you know, the so magazine... The magazine Just 17 had an average readership age of about 13. You know, uh, you know so, so actually telling people that you're not eligible for something drives them practically insane. That's interesting. Um, but then... The reason the free speech thing is important is because there is a whole area of ideas which belong in an ad agency, which I would describe as you'd get promoted for making the suggestion and fired for enacting it. And that one that I suggested is an example of that, OK? If you actually had the idea, I'd be impressed by your ingenuity. If you actually executed it, I'd be horrified by your lack of judgment. <laughs> but the, ability, the ability to say that thing is really, really important because, mm -hmm. one, speech is experimental action. So applying the same criteria to speech as you do to physical actions is ridiculous because one of the reasons we've evolved humour and speech is it's nature's flight simulator. It's where we try things out without actually doing them. You know, probably the role of stories, a whole bunch of things exist as a kind of simulation. But the second thing is, sometimes in advertising, in, in problem-solving of any kind, you kind of have to climb Mount Silly to get to the bright, sunlit uplands beyond. Mm. And what I eventually suggested, borrowing from that Rowan Atkinson sketch for the, the um, smoke detector thing, is I said, turn up with six. Now, six is a ridiculous number. Mm. And 
if you say to the people, well, um, you know, we, we, we normally bring six uh, smoke detectors to a home, but um, uh, I think here you can make do with three or four. Mm. You'll probably get them to install four, three or four, mm. three in fact, yeah. because one now seems weirdly on the low side. Once you've anchored them at six, one seems like, well, no one will have one. It's insanity, right? And so... Having the ability to say and think, and I would argue the principal value of an ad agency isn't actually the production of advertising or communication. It's the existence of a culture with a client company's interests at heart, but with a culture in which it is possible to say ridiculous things and still get promoted. Mm. Now, that's one of the most important things that an ad agency can have, is the ability to say something totally ridiculous, um, which in, say, the civil service would be career suicide, or in politics would probably be career suicide, uh, unless you, you, you know, unless you're a Boris Johnson and you manage to kind of... Or, or Donald Trump. Or, or Donald Trump, yeah. 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 I mean, there's, a bit of, there's a bit of me which goes, Jesus, you know, I mean, I don't like what he says, but at least, at least I believe him when he says it. Mm. Yeah. I think a lot of people feel that way, you know, actually. You know, it's one of the reasons he probably got elected. It's like the Nixon argument, isn't it? You mm. know where you are with a good plain crook. <laughs> but, I mean, there is something about that, which is that the elite priestly caste has become basically weird. It's become fixated with a very, very narrow worldview, mm. um, which is instilled in all those kind of religious ceremonies that take place uh, in Davos or business schools or whatever, which are all inculcating exactly the same creed. Mm. Okay. Now, I'm, by the way, I'm a conservative. I'm not making this as a kind of weird left-wing point. Um, but I don't, I, I don't think anybody can reasonably say that there's a complete lack of imagination and weirdness in politics and business, which is that it's become obsessed with an incredibly narrow uh, way of defining uh, worldly progress and success, mostly around efficiency and cost reduction, which is not really very well aligned with what people really care about. You and I met two years ago at Kilconomics in Ireland. Doing and, comedy. Well, yeah, I was doing comedy. Well, you, you were doing the same thing, I was doing comedy. And <clears throat> we were ch chatting in the bar after one of, our, of the shows that we were on. And uh, you were telling me about this new thing in China where they're going to have this system, where they're going to track everybody's behavior and all this stuff. And I'll be honest with you, Pippa, I really like you, but I was sitting there listening to you going, she's a little bit crazy. <laughs> <laughs> she could be a little bit crazy. Maybe she smoked she a really? lot of weed when she was... Really? Yes. Yeah, yeah. so interesting. Yeah. I was sitting there, and then a year later... Boom. It's happened. It's real. And that's what you were talking to us about last time you were on the show. What the hell is going on, and what, what, what's to come? Because now I believe you. Thank you. Okay, so let's just quickly go through what is already real. Right. If you jaywalk in, not all of China, they've only rolled it out in one city, but they're gonna roll it out nationally. If you jaywalk, it clocks that you've done it because the cameras are ubiquitous now. So the facial recognition is incredibly strong. They have the most valuable artificial intelligence startup in the world, in fact, the most valuable startup in the world, called SenseTime. And it can recognize an individual out of a crowd of 10,000. And it can recognize your emotional state at any given time. So it clocks, it's you and particularly you. Next thing you know, you pick your mobile phone up and the fine for having jaywalked is already in your text messages, if not 
already deducted from your bank account, and your name and or your government number is already broadcast on the OLED screen that's above the intersection, the nearest intersection. So you've now been broadcast to everyone nearby that you are bad and you just violated the law. Now this is important because what it does is affects your effectively personal Uber score. Now, the social credit system is based on the idea that you're a, a given a score uh, which reflects your social compliance. So if you Google stuff that they don't want you looking at, your score goes down. If your brother or your sister does it, your score goes down, right? Because Mao always said the, the best eyes and watchers, or it's not the government, it's to get everybody to report on each other. Mm -hmm. And this is a kind of a, I mean, the Stasi would love this system. But it's bigger than that. Uh, within the last few weeks, it's been announced that when you tap, swipe, and pinch on your mobile device, it's a better indicator of who you are than your thumbprint. So now, even if you're using someone else's phone, they know it's you. Triangulate that with the way you walk. It turns out your walking gait is also a better indicator of who you are than your thumbprint. So what, what they're doing is taking all these things and triangulating. Uh, think about it as previously independent silos of data. Now they triangulate using artificial intelligence to pull it all together. But it goes even deeper than that. Um, and uh, recently they arrested someone at a rock concert of like 60,000 people because, again, the face went by one camera, bang, it clocks. This person is wanted. And they went to the person's seat, con you know, the debit card, yep, the ticket, yep, they're arrested. I think they now have 11 million people who are, you can buy a train ticket or a plane ticket, but you can't board it. They won't permit you. So effectively. You wherever you are. No, no. So they're putting oh, you into digital, digital prisons. So I think one of the um, spouses of one of the dissenters, uh, she's like locked into a very small few block area around her house. And anytime she tries to move beyond it, the officials are alerted and the police will be right there. So she literally is stuck in a, in a digital prison. This is basically what the technology permits. And it rewards you if you do things that are supportive of what government's interested in, and it basically penalizes you if you don't. We're doing the same thing in the West. It's just it's not government that's doing it. We have private entities that do it. We have Facebook that does it. We have Amazon that does it. We have Uber that does it. Um, and I don't know if you saw, but there's been an announcement that there's been a deal between, um, it seems, Google and uh, MasterCard. So now if I go to, you know, I don't know, a department store and I buy this color lipstick, Google's going to know. And now they know what they're going to advertise to me. So I, I'm concerned about this and I write a lot about this in my book because imagine what we've got. It's a world where you are emitting data points about yourself all the time without even knowing it because you've turned all the fitness apps off on your phone but the fact is the way you walk is revealing a lot about you including by the way your your cardiac condition a lot about your health is revealed by how you walk so this multiplicity of data points that you're throwing off but you don't know who gets to see it but whoever does get to see it they know more about you than you know about yourself and by the way, it's a two-way thing. If I'm a chief executive and I go on, let's say, this program, and I start talking about my company and I'm lying, 
This same facial recognition technology can identify your microfacial movements, and they know that you're lying, and they can set the algorithms to short the stock of your company as you're talking on, say, CNBC's Squawk Box. So think of it as almost like a crystal ball of data points, and on the one side, it will let us conjure forth answers that will do things like solve cancer, literally. We will solve extraordinarily difficult problems by having all this data. But it also changes the balance of power between companies and customers because companies will have so much information that I've argued, you know, we used to have insider trading laws. We may need insider trading laws. That, that if I am MasterCard now or Google, my knowledge of you is so great. Forget Cambridge Analytica. They only had 5,000 data points on 81 million people, and that was enough to begin to influence your political position. I can sell you way more than a political position. If I have more than that, I can sell you a refrigerator. I can sell you anything I want. So I think human beings are very vulnerable to this kind of power being exercised. And similarly, what kind of world do we have if people don't know how they appear? And is there should we have a right to know how do we look with that data um, slice looking at us at any given time. So in the book, I've uh, tried to lay this out because we have a lot of leaders who are making decisions about the landscape of our future who don't understand what I'm saying. And so they're, they're, they're literally missing a profound shift in humanity. Well, this is the future. I mean, this, this is this the future is now. of us, right? This is now. It's not even the future. This is nothing I'm not telling you is for the future. It is already existing right now. Jesus Christ. I'm never smoking weed again. <laughs> <laughs> you won't need to. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, right. So, I mean, joking aside, but then that literally means if you're being tracked of every single second of every day, if they're reading what you were doing, if they can manipulate you, is that the end of free will, eventually? This is the, this, so what's really interesting to me is when I was in college, I studied political philosophy and everyone went, oh my God, you will never get a job. I mean, you are permanently unemployed if you stay. Now we get to this and I'm like, these are questions of political philosophy. That's exactly what this is. This is about the balance of power between states and citizens, companies and customers, uh, between citizens. Uh, it's about... Uh, the, the invasion of a, a person's free will? Absolutely. These are all core questions now. They're, they're not tangential anymore. And, I, and the more we develop artificial intelligence, the greater this is going to be. For example, um, I know a guy who's building an extraordinary company. Um, it is effectively going to place nanochips, which are so small that, that they can fit inside the body. They are at the level, or it's, they're below the level of atoms, right? You're basically in the, you're into the level of, you can see someone's atomic structure, their nuke, their DNA, their um, cellular structure, and their organs, because it just, they float around in your body at the nano level. So that means, the good news is, when you get cancer, you get proteins in advance of the cancer, which now we don't detect very well, but then you'll be able to say, you're building up proteins, we see it coming, we can hit this thing and you'll never get cancer. Right. But the bad news is, you're emitting information about what is physically happening to you, to whoever has access to that data. 
again, the good news is that will create a kind of, um, he calls it a cure chain, the guy who founded it, Steve Papermaster, like blockchain, it's a cure chain. We'll be able to cure many obscure diseases that only a few people have that right now aren't worth fixing, but with that, you can fix it easily. But talk about privacy. I mean, the healthcare companies will know more about your health than you will ever know about your own health. So, yes, these are really profound philosophical questions. Well, here's the thing is it's not just health as well because uh, we had an evolutionary psychologist on the show a few weeks oh, back. Yeah. I don't know if you've caught that episode, uh, Diana Fleischman. And one of the things she was talking about is genetic studies. The study of genetics is now coming to a point where we can pretty confidently say that there's a very strong genetic component to behavior. Yes. Right? Yes, yes, so yes. if you can analyze people at that level and their DNA and their genetics, you're not just going to be able to tell what disease they might develop or whatever. You're going to be able to tell what their personality type is to some extent, what their choices are going to be, what their political leanings are going to be. It would make dating really easy. <laughs> <laughs> that would actually make dating much easier, yeah. wouldn't it? Yeah. Imagine Tinder. <laughs> da, da, da. No, I want a left-leaning. I can see uh, you're good for three dates and then you're good. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. You're good for a one-night stand. Yeah, the, the, <laughs> I think yes. you're missing you're the key part of this. I think you guys but, are really missing the importance yeah, of it. But, but you know what? Remember Minority Report? And there right. was that idea of uh, pre-crime. Pre pre yeah. That is already real in China. They are already using the artificial intelligence in conjunction with this extraordinary data sweep, and they are determining which people look more inclined to cut corners than others, and then to start corralling them into a corner and putting pressure to behave better. That's today. That's not maybe someday. We already see this in motion. So there's, again, this is a huge philosophical question, is this question of prejudging, precognition, premeditation. Where do we draw these lines? Subscribe to us on YouTube, give us a rating on iTunes, follow us everywhere that you can. We are on Twitter, on Instagram, on Facebook, all these terrible social media platforms that please keep using them <laughs> to support our channel at TriggerPod. Anything else, Francis? Yeah, don't smoke weed while you're watching this episode. <laughs> and uh, if you've enjoyed it, we'll see you in a week's time with another brilliant episode. Thank you very much. Goodbye. Before you go, consider joining our exclusive member feed. As a member, you'll get ad-free and extended interviews. Click the membership link in the podcast description or find the exclusive episodes link on your podcast listening app to join us.